fam. Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I am your loving host, Dylan Bowman, here today with Justin Grunewald, the pro trail runner and physician living in Boulder, Colorado. At the end of January, Justin put up a post on Instagram that really resonated with me that gave us the perfect opportunity to finally set up a podcast episode. In the post I'm referencing, Justin talks about his experience participating in dry January for the first time and how abstaining from alcohol consumption for a month impacted his personal health and his athletic performance. I've been doing dry January for almost a decade now, and my own alcohol consumption is something that I have thought about for a while. And in the last few years, I've increasingly wrestled with where it fits in my life. So Justin's post spoke to me and, you know, was synchronous with my internal dialogue. So I felt like it was a valuable conversation to have here on the podcast. Clearly, judging from the comment section and engagement on Justin's post, there's a lot of other people who are experiencing similar feelings. So hopefully talking about these sorts of things here on the podcast will have a broader positive impact. In addition to dry January and alcohol consumption, we also talk a lot about the sponsorship landscape in the sport, the relationship between pro athletes and agents, and uh, you know a lot of other things that were on Justin's mind that were fun to talk about. We also, of course, look ahead to Justin's running at the Terrawera 100K in New Zealand this coming weekend at the end of the podcast. So a big good luck to Justin as he gets ready to open his season. Before we get to the episode, a reminder that next week is the Big Alta Week, February 24th and 25th, the inaugural running of our new race in my neighborhood here in Marinwood, California. Cannot wait to greet all of our runners here next weekend. We'll be doing full live streams of both races, the 50K on Saturday and the 28K on Sunday in partnership with our friends over at Mountain Outpost. So make sure you tune in to the live streams next weekend. Finally, thank you to our partners who make Free Trail possible. Our presenting sponsor, Speedland, launching a brand new commission next Monday. Watch this space, the GSPDX. Mark your calendars. They will move fast. Also, Osprey Packs, Gnarly Nutrition, and Rourke Apparel. Visit the show notes for links and discount codes with these great brands and their great products. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the episode. The Free Trail Podcast is presented by Speedland and the all-new GS Oak. The pink, purple, and black just might be my favorite colorway yet of the GS platform that is now in commission number three. Of course, there was my shoe, the GS Tam, the Cam Haynes shoe, the GS PGH, and now the GS Oak, done in collaboration with fellow indie trail brand, Path Projects, and with design inspiration from Speedland athlete, my good buddy, Liam Lonsdale. All three of the GS models are primo products. You may have seen David Goggins recently trash-talking Cam Haynes with a pair of the GS PGH on Instagram. That was pretty surreal. I still see a ton of people out on the trails rocking the GS Tam. And now the GS Oak is already more than 50% sold out. And you know the deal. Once they're gone, they're gone for good. No restocks. So you better jump on it now. 2024 is going to be a huge year for Speedland. If you've never tried the brand, there is no better time than now. The world's most high performance, most durable and most stylish trail shoes. As always, Free Trail listeners get 10% off by using code FREETRAIL10 at checkout. Head over to runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10.
Justin Grunewald, welcome to the podcast, buddy. At long last, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know my traditional opening question for you, Justin. I got to ask this before we get to the other stuff. It's the expectation of the audience at this point. That is what makes you, you. Yeah, um, I guess I have a lot of different pieces, but the simplified version of me is I'm a trail runner, partner to Amanda Basham. We have two beautiful little girls. I'm a full-time physician, work in Minnesota, live three weeks a month in Boulder. I'm a huge advocate for rare cancer research. My late wife, Gabrielle Grunwald, um, started Foundation Brave Like Gabe, so help run that, raise money, hopefully find treatments, cures, and then spread hope along the way. So many great yeah, things that you work on. And I'd love to hear you talk briefly about just the lifestyle, being a dad that has to travel back to Minnesota a week every month to work. Like, how do you practically make that all work out, especially given everything that you have going on at home in Boulder? Yeah. I mean, I questions better for Amanda because she, um, takes the brunt of it. <laughs> Thankfully we have a great nanny, Claire, who comes five days a week, hopefully sometimes six days a week when I'm gone. So Amanda can at least get her running, but that still leaves her on one and three-year-old duty for uh, like the rest 18 hours of the day, which is hugely taxing. But for me, it's a short flight, like hour and 40 minutes, drive to the airport, light rail. We have a condo there, do my like 90-hour work week. It sucks, but it's like bang for your buck. Work hard, play hard is our philosophy in life. So <clears throat> I work hard for a week take a down weekend running still. I mean, it's crazy when you're not a parent working a 90 hour week, I can run 90 miles, recover, sauna, foam roll, get a massage and feel like, like there's just more time in the day, but the kids add a lot of happiness to the time of the day. They just like to utilize a lot of that time. They delete the time in the day, the free time in the exactly. day, but you're right. Yeah. And, and thank God for nannies. I have to echo that myself. Jesse comes over to our place five days a week and relieves a lot of the pressure for our family too. And childcare is such an underrated thing. And oh. nannies are some of the most important people in the world as our teachers, we should say. Definitely. <laughs> and family, even I understand why people don't yeah. move far away from home. Like my family's in Minnesota. Amanda's is out in Oregon. So we're like isolated. But every once in a while, I'm like, I'll pitch a tent in my parents' yard and they can take over for a month. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, dude, I'm so excited to have this conversation. There's so many things that I feel like we have in common and things that we overlap on. And I wanted to start specifically with this dry January concept that you've posted about a couple of times, something that I very much resonate with uh, in terms of my own personal alcohol consumption. And I feel like this is a really practical and relatable subject for probably a lot of people who are listening. So just starting there, for those who didn't see, summarize the post that you did on Instagram there at the end of January and what your experience with dry January had been like. Yeah, I guess my initial post was just talking about in this post-pandemic semi-strange world we live in where there was a lot of isolation. Um, me being a hospital doctor, we've seen a crazy amount, just exponential increase in substance abuse in like, not just like drinking small amounts of alcohol, but drinking to the point where you're needing a one 
0.75 liters of vodka a day just to like survive to the point where your liver's exploded. And like we calculate, the calculator we use is called the model of end-stage liver disease, your MELD score. And it's like these 30-year-olds coming in with three-month life expectancy, and that's completely crushing to deal with. And while I'm dealing with this in my off weeks, I'm not drinking a liter of vodka, but I'm drinking two 8% IPAs, which moves to three, which moves to four. Your tolerance just increases. And the last three years, I wanted half, like half wanted to do dry January, but I wasn't going to. Like I kind of needed the beer, like with a newborn, with a one-year-old. We've been in the newborn phase forever <laughs> on top of past life stress, just like I get terrible insomnia, um, things like that. But this year was a particularly stressful in other ways. Just it was the end of a three-year contract with companies and then renegotiating. Like Amanda had a lot of stress from that. I had a lot of stress from that. And then there's more and more data every year. Everyone knows alcohol hinders recovery. Now, January of 2023, World Health Organization changed their recommendation to no alcohol, meaning as a physician, I used to be like, for a woman, drink your glass of wine. It's heart healthy. For a man, drink your one to two glasses of wine, your beer, what have you. We said that was healthy. Now the stance is zero alcohol is healthy. There's much more correlation with cancer risk and things like that. There was already a known risk of dementia on top of alcohol-related deaths. So me being a physician felt more and more hypocritical doing what I was doing. And then me being a pro athlete, I'm literally reverse doping. I'm hurting my performance every day, every reverse night. Reverse doping. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like anti-doping. Yeah. All my competitors are taking every advantage they can. And here I am just like sawing my left leg off at the start of the race, like day in and day out. So I'm like, and it's just denial. I was like, I can function better on alcohol. I'm better than the studies, you know? I'm like, I'm a none of one. I can do it. But it's just not true. So three days into dry January, I was like, holy shit, I feel phenomenal. Like, <laughs> I've been hung over for three years. Yeah. And now it's just continued to amplify, like, in training and performance. Before we come back to your personal experience with dry January, I'd love to hear more about your experience as a physician because it is kind of a disturbing fact what you're articulating here that in your capacity working in the healthcare space, you've seen a huge increase in abuse of alcohol. What do you attribute that to? Is it the recovery from COVID? Do people develop a dependency during COVID and now it's showing up as sort of late stage addiction? Or is it a manifestation of some other rot in our society? How do you diagnose that if you can? I think as I mean, I do think there is, as you said, rot in our society. Like there's a heightened anxiety, there's a heightened polarization between right and left. And when I think when we were probably kids, there was like a faux pas to like drink alone. Like if you're drinking at a bar, it's okay. But if you're drinking alone in your condo by yourself, it's probably not okay. So then you isolate these people for a year, two years. Like imagine you went to a desk job, you saw people, people see if you're hungover, you probably have a 
something to upkeep. Now all of a sudden you're in your pajamas, maybe checking into a Zoom meeting, maybe just doing emails all day. Like a lot of people I'd see in the hospital, they'd start drinking halfway through their work day just to carry it over and fun they're just functionally an alcoholic, which it's a lot easier to hide when you're at home. And um I don't know. There's just for the World Health Organization to make this statement, um, which I can tell you how I came upon that, actually, a friend of yours, Tyler Green, a friend of mine. So I never felt sheepish about my drinking. I never felt really concerned about it. I'd always be like, I knew in the back of my brain it was hurting my performance, but I went to crew him at Western States to pace him, his three bodies, Mike, Matt, and Jordan. Um, I think Tyler wanted to like amuse me or keep me interested. So we went and got pizza. I drank two double IPAs. They drank like a Sprite, a lemonade and a water. None of them drink. And I like grab a crawler for the night back at the Airbnb. Like, the night, like, and I could see they were all looking at me a little weird. Mm. And I'm just in my normal state. And Matt and Mike are both therapists. They shared a lot of data on alcohol performance, like Huberman, all these things. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. But I listened to them in time and I thank them for as well for me, like finding this and actually listening to the science. So, but the healthcare aspect of it is really daunting and sad. Um, the super drugs, the synthetic fentanyls now coming over from China. Amanda's brother sadly passed away from a narcotic overdose. So it all hits really close to home. Mm -hmm. Um, my little sister-in-law was hit by a driver under the influence with both meth and fentanyl in her system. So an alcohol is in itself the same. It's a lethal drug once you get to certain quantities of it. Yeah. And the threshold, I guess, that's important is when it goes from recreational to medicinal. And in your post, yeah. you say that you were using alcohol to medicate grief, PTSD, insomnia. Can you identify a moment where it made that transition between recreational and medicinal? Because this is, again, something that I deeply identify with myself. Yeah. I mean, it's a long, long time coming. And it comes back to um, like when Gabriel was sick, there's, I'm a hospital doctor. So I spend a lot of time in the hospital. But when you're on the other end of it and you're, spouse and late in her life we spent a fair amount of nights in the hospital and i'd legitimately sneak a four pack of beer in my backpack into the hospital room because i'm sitting in a chair like i love hospitals like they do good but they treat their visitors so poorly <laughs> i'm in like the most uncomfortable rickety chair that i'm going to spend the night in the only way i'm going to fall asleep is if i'm like passing out legitimately and it kind of, I think, carried over from there to, I switched to night shifts at work uh, shortly after she passed because when I went to work, everyone looked incredibly sad at me. And, you know, that like empty question of like, how you're doing? Like, oh, I'm here for you. They're not empty. Like they all mean well, but very few people work nights. So I just got to avoid people altogether. And legitimately working nights, I can't drink. So I'm like, that's my week off of drinking. And then I'll just drink the rest of the time. <laughs> so I was doing it to curb the addiction at the same time as just avoid the sad faces. So 
but it definitely was while she was sick. Um, it just became a coping mechanism. Yeah. And I, I mean, not to equate my own experience, but like drinking is the ultimate pressure relief valve. And so when you're going through anything, whether in my case, it's just day-to-day stress and anxiety of trying to own and operate a business and having a young child and needing to make sure my wife and son are fed and we keep a roof over our heads. Like that's the simple stress that millions of people deal with and millions of people turn to alcohol as a result of dealing with that stress. Your situation was obviously much more concentrated, severe, powerful. And, you know, I think there's just a lot of people who use alcohol as that pressure relief valve of my life feels overwhelming right now. This is my safety blanket. And it becomes sort of a slippery slope or a self-fulfilling dangerous progression, doesn't it? And actually you say this in your post, like there's a difference between a bad habit and an addiction, right? And like you talk about going from one beer to two to four. So maybe if you want to say anything about, about that progression and then, you know, how that turns into habit and, and maybe, I don't know if you use the word addiction or abuse to characterize your own consumption, but that progression is something that I think as we build tolerance is underrated, isn't it? Definitely. And I mean, that's just it. It's the the tolerance piece and the, when I started drinking those beers, like I'd feel kind of crappy after two strong IPAs in the morning. Then when two became the normal, I'd drink and like, it'd almost be where at 11 o'clock at night, I'd be watching some garbage college basketball game because I love sports and that's what I do. And it'd be like, I'm going to open this next beer and I'm going to feel 30% worse in the morning, but I'm just willing to do it. And I literally go through that in my head. Yeah. I'd be like, there's a spin drift or there's a beer, there's a spin drift. And I'd like toggle back and forth for five minutes and be like, beer. Okay. Like easy answer. It's like, I will feel 5% better for 20 minutes and 30% worse tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) But still sleep five minutes faster. Right. Like. Yeah. But it's crazy. And it is, I mean, I definitely in medicine, again, we use like the cage questionnaire. Do you feel like you should cut back? Do you feel agitated by people? Do you feel guilty? And then do you need like an eye opener? The eye opener is the ultimate, like where you're waking up needing a drink to like calm your nerves. And I was failing the cage questionnaire in a medical perspective because I was like feeling like I need to cut back. I was feeling guilty about it. Even like when Tyler's friend, Mike and Matt pursued, like, I'd feel agitated. I'd be like, no, like, I'm going to get cancer from the sun anyway. Why do I, why are you hating on my beer? <laughs> like, you know, so it was all there. The writing was on the wall. It just, when you finally listen to that writing, and I think it took, for me, thankfully I have athletics. Like, I think if I wasn't trying to compete like you were talking to Mario about John Ray and Hayden, like the professionalization of sports, like Tom Evans friggin' having every thermo regulation, like God knows what these guys are doing. And I'm drinking four beers before my race. Like I still want to beat them, but I got to give myself advantages because these guys are taking every advantage. Yeah. Not only are they great athletes, but they're not reverse doping themselves into oblivion. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, I've lamented my own 
you know, lack of performance or feeling as if my capabilities as an athlete have cratered in the last two years. But simultaneously, the hard truth is that my alcohol consumption has vastly in increased in the last couple of years. And those two things, I'm sure, are not unrelated. So you said that you've always scoffed at dry January. What made you want to give it a try here in 2024 for the first time? Was it simply the athletic application? In the end, it was the athletic application. It was um, verbatim. It was conversation with sponsors. Um, thinking, I think somewhere, I never wanted to be a professional athlete in reality. Like I didn't, I, I'm a professional doctor. Like being a runner was enough. And there's nothing more powerful than being an unsponsored runner and kicking a bunch of people's asses that are sponsored. Like that's that target on your back once you're sponsored. So I never had an issue with that. Amanda convinced me to, she's a great agent herself. She's a great coach, great everything, but she's like, you should get paid. Like you're doing pretty good. And then ultimately I thought I had a good year. I got third place at two golden ticket races, just missed them. Um, you get a bunch of sponsored people, uh, and this was in lieu of alcohol. So I think I had a lot of success with the alcohol as well. So I was even lying to myself further, but then I got told I wasn't that great. And I had this like sense of entitlement that I deserved to be sponsored. I deserved to be paid and no one deserves that. Like we do this sport cause we love it. And I kind of realized that. And then I realized I love it so much that I want to be the best I can be. And regardless of my love for Nelson hops and just different nuances of double IPAs, I can put that on the back burner and hopefully drink in celebration when I get those golden tickets and podium at Tarawar and do all those things. And that ultimately is more important to me. Again, it goes back to recreational versus medicinal using totally. it as a celebration versus using it as a pressure release valve. And it seems like dry January has given you a glimpse of your true capabilities as an athlete, maybe something that alcohol was holding back, notwithstanding the great results that you did achieve last season and throughout your career. What have you noticed in your running as a result of this stint of sobriety? Yeah. I mean, just the recovery blows my mind. Uh, as a coach, Amanda does this little thing she calls training camp where it's like, a three-ish day race simulation with like three 20, 20 plus mile runs, some hard, some easy, but a mix. And usually I finish my first 25 mile run, drink three or four beers that night. You know, I've done this three race lead-ins now where she's coached me. And this time, like day four, when I'm usually pretty depleted, I felt like I could go for a 50 K race and just like power. Like, I, and it's, I think with alcohol on board, I'll go for these runs up Gold Hill. It's our iconic winter loop here in Boulder. And I get 30 minutes into a tempo and my mind starts to wander, you know, and like the gut aches a little bit. And I always just attributed that to, and now I'm just like, slow down, you're going too fast, slow down, you're going too fast. And it, that's like such a good feeling to have. Mm. The I don't know, my fitness has like exponentially gone up looking at old stuff. And the only difference is the alcohol. Like I'm not... I didn't become vegan. I didn't like start doing anything else differently. What about mood? Like that's a kind of a fascinating, I don't know, observation though, isn't it? Like not only are you feeling better in your training, but maybe psychologically 
you are not tougher is tougher might not be the right word, but more able to is the right word. Yeah. Okay. Like I, I just, my focus is like a laser and I, it's like when something hurts, you're just so focused on the process that it doesn't matter as much. Whereas I, and I didn't know this cause I was drinking for so long, but before when something hurt, I'd focus on the hurt. Yeah. And it's, yeah. You go out for a workout and you're a little bit hungover. It's a lot easier to talk yourself into dialing it back a little bit or cutting the run short. The mood totally. question I think is an interesting one. A good friend of mine, Yassine Daboon, I don't know if you know him, but he's been sober now for 20 years. And I remember him telling me a little while ago that he was having a conversation with a friend who was simultaneously dealing with some depression and who was also a heavy drinker. And he said to his friend, well, don't you realize that you're consuming a depressant every day? And even though alcohol is that perfect pressure relief valve, it really is those, that first 20, 30 minutes, it's like the magical buzz, right? And then afterwards it sort of has a counterproductive impact. At least it does for me on my emotional state. Have you noticed during the dry January stint that maybe your mood and general outlook on life has improved too? Definitely. And that's, again, everything you just said, the 30 minute window of like, I have two kids screaming. One of them blew out a diaper. One of them smashed the other one's head. And I'm like, it's beer time. Like nothing else is going to make me happy. But now actually like just dealing with that, separating them, like, it's not like the scream stops, but the alcohol, which doesn't create happiness, it doesn't create happiness. Like I texted two of my best friends the other night while I was still in these contract talks. And I'm like, what makes you happy? Cause I was just looking. Cause I'm like, I know Amanda makes me happy. I know the girls make me happy for a long period. I thought beer made me happy, but there's just so much other stuff. And like, there's so much trivial stuff. I like, stress out about and that doesn't make me happy like running makes me happy you know yeah well we're on that subject it makes me want to ask about you know like relationships obviously and oftentimes take the brunt of alcohol consumption or abuse and you know we my wife and i harmony we do dry january every year and this is probably eight ten years in a row at this point and we did, we broke our fast. I want to come around to asking you whether you've broken your fast yet, but we broke our fast. And that night, you know, I had a couple beers. She had a couple glasses of wine. And that night we argued for the first time in a month, right? And it was, it was something that we talked about the next morning of like, man, you know, alcohol. It's just something that we have been talking about in our household for a long time is like, and we're not super heavy drinkers, but where does it fit now in our lives, especially coming out of dry January? We both feel a lot better. And as soon as we got back on the booze, we have an argument with each other. So if there's anything you want to add about, you know, alcohol, because it is like a great way to cultivate relationships with people. I mean, most of my best friends are people who I've, you know, have had very long nights with, you know, consuming substances. Right. And so, um, you know, like relationships can both be cultivated in those situations, but also at a certain point it becomes counterproductive, doesn't it? Definitely. And I think my brother got married in like 
Fort Lauderdale, Miami at the end of the year, like the weekend before New Year's. So it was a week of way too much drinking and um, just random spats between Amanda and I, which were probably more focused around drinking. There was like, there's always stresses of kids and those things, but um, that was another just realization that I think sometimes, especially like I'll drink, I said, I'll, I'll work nights, then I'll drink like four beers. Then I would, I become, I became a morning person in January, which is crazy and almost drives me insane. I'm getting up at like 6am, seeing the sunrise, drinking my coffee, reading sports center articles. And I, before I'd lay in bed to like sleep through my hangover, I was like an absentee parent for the first couple hours of the day, just because I forced myself to stay in bed until I felt normal. And that's such a waste oh. of time. And the majority of my runs are at noon because I was hung over until 10 and then I ate breakfast and then now it's hundred degrees out. So it's definitely been a huge change in that regard. And I know Amanda just puts up with me. She's a saint. I don't know how she puts up with me, but I know drinking did not add a ton of positivity. Yeah. I'd say in the one positive drinking did have when I met Amanda I was drinking. Our first date was to Monkish Brewing, which is in Torrance, California. It's a really great IPA, hazy IPA maker. And the disinhibition of drinking, I think, allowed me more so to fall in love with her, where I was guarded and like in not a great place. So I am grateful to it for that. And not that I needed to be disinhibited, but I think once you lose someone or someone dies, you like have this need to be sad or you don't want to ever be seen happy. And then like you drink two beers and like, you're like kind of forget that. And you're like, Oh, I can be happy with you. It's so true, man. So true. What did you think about the response to your post? I checked in before we started recording here today. I mean, it has over 5,000 likes, 200 comments. Like it clearly touched a feeling that a lot of people are wrestling with right now. Have there been any interesting DMs that have come your way without revealing any private conversations? What do you think of the impact of it? Yeah. I mean, I, my whole, I guess, I really don't love social media and that's probably why I'm a difficult, I think in trail running, especially you need to be an influencer and an athlete, unless you're Jim Walmsley, then you can just be an athlete and be awkward on social media. No offense, Jim, like you're not crazy awkward, but just like minimal posts, like someone else posts for you, that sort of thing. But uh, I don't love social media, but there's a utility for it, for teaching, for caring, for spreading goodness, I believe. And I was, I'm just crazy impressed with how many people first found sobriety and like remain sober. Like, after a month, I was like, where's my one month coin, man? Like, <laughs> I, just, I mean, I say that kind of jokingly, but I've seen substance abuse my whole life and it was hard. I'm actually, I still haven't drank and I was almost going to draw a title my run today, like literally 37 beers or 37 days without beer for me is far more impressive than the 10,000 day run streaker. Like, I don't care if you run every day for 10 years, like I'm proud of this and I'm trying to keep it till Tarawera. Um, but a physician messaged me. He sent me that world world health recommendation, which I'd previously seen, but I thought it was powerful for him to message me that and say how he's been sharing that with his colleagues. And as a profession, 
we're massively failing to spread that information that I I would bet in 10 to 15 years, every 12 pack you buy, every bottle of wine, every bottle of vodka will say cancer risk associated with consumption of this, just like a pack of cigarettes. And the data is just coming through now. Everything's always 20 years removed because there's a boatload of money in alcohol, just like there was in big tobacco. Mm. So they're going to push it back the best they can. But like esophageal cancer, GI cancers, liver cancer, they're all alcohol related. Mm. So we know this. And again, that's why moderation is key. Like for cigarettes, guess what would your prediction be? Sorry, this is off topic, but for cost-effective medicine, how many cigarettes do you think you would have to smoke for it to be cost-effective and radiation effective to do screening CT scans of your lungs? Like how many cigarettes? Uh, like probably a multiple packs a day for a long period of time. Yeah. So it's one pack a day for 20 years. Okay. So 365 is days in the year, one pack, 20 cigarettes in a pack times 20. So we're talking upwards of I can't even count that high, but like now, so like as a kid, maybe you like once took a puff on a cigarette and you're like, I'm going to die of cancer, but it's literally (laughs) tens and tens of thousands of cigarettes to even cost effectively screen you for lung cancer. So your point is that, yeah, that's an immoderate approach to smoking. Yeah. Yeah. And we just need moderation. But moderation sucks, dude. I mean, this is maybe an interesting thing to talk about because like this is, the key for me, I suck at moderation. I hate it. If I have one beer, I intend to have four. And same is true for running. Like I'm either a hyper one night a week. Well, but, or yeah, exactly. Exactly. But still that one night a week or a couple of times a week, it has an impact. I mean, I'm at the point of where I have four beers. I'm, I don't feel normal for two, three days. Yeah, yeah. But the same is, yeah, the same is true for running. I'm either like a hyper-engaged pro athlete or I'm a super lazy couch potato. (laughs) But moderation is kind of the the key. Has this been something that you've been meditating on over the course of the 37 days of sobriety? Yeah, and I've... I mean, I think January 26th, 27th, 28th, I told Amanda the next night I was going to drink a beer. I mean, my key has been saying I'm going to have a beer tomorrow night. And then the night comes and maybe I don't need it. And then I say I'm going to have a beer tomorrow night. And I've li- I think I've said that for 15 straight nights or something. Um, and it's worked. I mean, everyone has their thing. Um, but I really love beer. I mean, I think you love beer as well. Like, I've seen, like, great notion. Like, there's these classic, really good IPA makers, and you can't make an NA beer like that for some reason. I don't know why. They just don't taste the same. Yeah. And I long for the day they do. I think they could catch up. And the more we learn about ill effects of alcohol, I think they will. But nothing, I don't, I'd love to, if I could have a beer that tasted like a really good double IPA, I'd love to know it's play like if I want that little buzz or if it's the taste, you know, cause I do love the taste. 
Rourke Apparel, back for 2024. Such a cool brand, born from a spirit of adventure and travel, big with the surfing and action sports community. Rourke is now a major player here in trail running. You may remember I did an interview with their founder, Ryan Hitzel, at the running event. I love everything about this brand. Obviously, they make great lifestyle product, but the Run Amok collection is truly great stuff. One thing I've enjoyed recently is the second wind jacket, the perfect windbreaker to bring out on the trail. Of course, I live here in the mild climates of Northern California, and this is my new favorite piece, the perfect extra layer for early morning dawn patrols on chilly winter days. But I could also see this being a great 12 month a year piece, a coastal windbreaker or the perfect lightweight layer for summer adventures in the Alpine. Wherever you're ripping, Rourke's got your back. And as a free trail listener, you can get 15% off. Just go to Rourke.com. Use promo code FREETRAIL15. That's R-O-A-R-K.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. This episode is brought to you by Osprey. Super excited to be working with this iconic Colorado brand, the market leader in technical outdoor and travel packs, celebrating its 50th anniversary in 2024. One of my favorite podcasts of last year was the How I Built This with Osprey founder, Mike Fotenhauer. An incredible story of design and innovation, which remains a core part of Osprey's DNA to this day, and that they're now focusing on the trail running category. You guys will absolutely love these trail running packs. I promise the Duro and Dyna are the men's and women's options respectively with an extremely robust product selection for runs of all types, quick lunch runs to multi-day suffer fests. I've been rocking the six liter Duro vest and absolutely love the fit, the function, the durability. Born in the San Juans, trusted by top athletes like Tyler Green and Rachel Drake. You gotta check out these products. To make them even better, Osprey's full line are also sustainably crafted with blue sign approved, 100% recycled main body materials. Again, making them a leader in the category. Head over to Osprey.com to check it out. Grab a bag, that's Osprey.com, or chances are you can find Osprey products also at your favorite local specialty mountain shop or run store. Thanks so much to Osprey. Say more about the insomnia piece that you've referenced in our conversation that you talk about in your post. Is that grief related or like, yeah. cause, cause obviously the, the shift work, shift work doesn't help. So mm -hmm. I work 6 PM to 6 AM for a whole week, mm. like wide awake, like chugging coffee at 5 AM, right? Going to bed at 7 AM. And then feel like garbage. And that was how I legitimized my running because or that's how I legitimized my drinking. I'd check my HRV in my work weeks and it'd be garbage because I'd sleep like four hours. Mm. And then I'd be like, oh, it's the same as when I'm drinking. Um, of course, it's garbage as well. Like they're hungover on both of them. But a lot of grief related stuff, just stuff that creeps into your brain at night. I mean, I like the simple life of watching, like I said, college basketball, college football, watch your, it's great not living on the West coast because stuff is on late. I can watch some like West coast conference game between Pepperdine and St. Mary's <laughs> until midnight. Hopefully you're not gambling on that stuff too. <laughs> yeah. No, just, just hanging out watching. Yeah. What was your relationship with alcohol like in your formative years? Cause this is again, something that I think about a lot now about how I want alcohol to fit into my life as a nearly 38 year old person, because 
you know, I was a hard partying dude, like from before it was legal for me to drink through college and beyond, you know? So it's been like a core part of my life, you know, and now entering middle age, it's harder to, to dissociate from those habits, even when we do recognize that they have ill effects on our life and, or cause real damage. Did you have a similar relationship with alcohol, like in yeah, high I school mean, and college? Ran at University of Minnesota. I think the Midwest is very renowned for its ability to drink. Mm -hmm. um, we have keggers at our house weekly after like the track meet, you know, we'd, we had a place called Burrito Loco where you could flip a quarter for drinks and like see how many free shots or drinks you get. So, I mean, drink pretty good then. And then uh, w during med school, probably drank more. But then once you hit like residency and rotations in med school, drinking is pretty obsolete because you're spending 30 hours in the hospital. <laughs> like the mm -hmm. last, I remember like, going out to drinks that during that period and just like falling asleep at the bar before even having a drink and like being asked to leave because they thought I was intoxicated, but I was just sleep deprived. Yeah. So, I mean, we can stop. That, that screwed me up too. Like the insomnia, like when you get used to staying up 30 hours, like I, these like long, long races, the ultra ultras, they're not going to be good for people long-term. I mean, mm. Hopefully they take their micro naps and stuff, but there's lots of sleep data that shows like there's really ill effects of being up for once you hit critical hours, like your life expectancy actually drops. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not surprising. I feel like, you know, we could talk about this alcohol thing forever. I think there's probably a lot of people who are like rolling their eyes. Like what the heck these sound like a couple of sort of alcoholic dads lamenting their consumption, but I hope it's relatable for Stop people. Screaming. I think the thing that, you know, is most before we move off of it, I'd love to just like talk about how to deal with stress in a healthy way. Have there been any new tools that you've in, implemented that don't involve alcohol in these last 37 days that maybe you hope to continue implementing into your life as you move into the age of moderation after Terrawera? Yeah, I think, well, that's one thing. Training for Terrawera, I've been really doing a good amount of heat training, sauna, hot tub, and like sauna is my like meditation ground um just clear your mind that sort of thing uh outside of that i think the biggest positive reinforcement has just been the running i mean i feel like i've taken myself back like 10 years like the body feels good the like i'm not one of these like gurus on inflammation. I don't take athletic greens. I don't do like, I'm just not, I think it tastes bad. Um, but I think, like I said, my reverse doping, just not doing that will give me a significant advantage moving forward where then maybe I'll add something to the regimen later if I feel like I need it. But I want to see just what solely not drinking alone has done. I think I'll get to race Daniel Jones at Tarawara who I think he just had a really phenomenal year. So I'm looking forward to some stiff competition. And I think while drinking, I like hit from the competition because I was always like crutching along and 
even like I posted, I drank four beers the night before Canyons and it was like the hottest Canyons ever. Like what a terrible decision. It didn't have much ill effect in, but that's like the bad reinforcement. Now I want to see what I can actually do. Well, you don't know, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you were third place in a race where the golden ticket only went too deep. If you hadn't had four beers the night before, who knows what would have happened? Obviously Cole and Adam had great races that day, but you were very much in that fight. Well, Dude, thanks for talking about it. And thanks for being open about it. It, It's when, as soon as you posted it, Harmony sent it to me. (laughs) She's like, you got to get Justin on. I was like, this is perfect. Like what a great uh, conversation to have and a timely one for both of us now. And hopefully it's valuable for the audience too. I know you've done a bunch of podcasts, but I'd love to just like spend a second stepping back you know, your wife, Gabe, passed three and a half years ago now, something that I certainly can't relate to or identify with like I can this other conversation. I've never experienced serious loss in my life, but it's inevitable for everybody. What's your relationship like with grief at this point? And how has that progressed in the last three and a half years? Yeah, I mean, three and a half years is a long time. It's pretty crazy. Uh, it's definitely progressed i think in a really good way and i actually think as we just talked about for the last 45 minutes like cleaning myself up a little bit has also progressed it a while back amanda said like i always have this like lingering undertone of sadness mm-hmm. which is reasonable i think i've been through a fair amount of life but maybe some of the sadness was the depressant effect of alcohol um I think when you're in the thick of grief, I remember I was out in Aspen. I think I messaged you, you were out of town or something. Mario was trying to connect us for a run, but you're just like, it's all encompassing and it's unsurvivable in that moment. But I'm still here. I'm still like, I haven't spontaneously combusted yet. And life has only gotten better with time. Like I have Amanda, the best partner in the world. Um, She does everything for me. So huge thanks to her like seeing our girls it just there's a light at the end of the tunnel I think if anyone can look for it it's there you just got to find a way to get there and it's not always the easiest thing yeah to get there you recently posted about your brother getting married and in the caption of that post you say that him wearing a Brave Like Gabe t-shirt in some way led to him meeting his now wife, which struck me as kind of the perfect serendipity. Say a few words about that. Yeah, it's super weird. We have, again, like, I'd hardly met his fiance, um, Casey. She's an awesome woman. And we were sitting down to beers because that's what you do. It was like the Tuesday before their wedding. And she's like, did you know how we met? And they were, my brother does a lot of CrossFit, Casey, Ron, like they're both active people, but they're at this like 5k in Fort Lauderdale or something. And my brother shows up in his Brave Like Gabe t-shirt and she sees him. And for some reason they get to chatting, they exchange numbers, they go on a date, now they're married. And it's just like, it blows my mind. She didn't, I mean, she said she like knew what the foundation was and then it's like he didn't exactly say he was my brother, but she'd like heard the story, obviously. So it's serendipitous and pretty cool. My brother's 40, 
42, he'll be 42 this year. And I was like, pegged him as a guy that was never going to get married. So now he's got this like wonderful wife and they're talking about starting a family and all that stuff. So it makes me super happy. It's beautiful, man. What a, what a cool thing. The very first brand to ever believe in free trail, you guessed it, Gnarly Nutrition. Born in Salt Lake, Gnarly sets the standard when it comes to performance nutrition products. Of course, they have run fueling dialed with Fuel2O, the collab orange drink flavor we formulated together. Gnarly also offers pre-workout blends and extremely dank protein mixes. I am going hard on the protein right now, I'm not gonna lie. This aging athlete and podcaster had an evaluation recently and there was one thing that was abundantly clear. I basically needed to double my protein intake. Enter Gnarly Nutrition. I'm now smashing three scoops of the Gnarly Whey protein powder mid-morning every day and already feel way better charging into 2024. For those who are plant-based, Gnarly also offers a vegan option of the same protein powder. And to be honest, I can't tell them apart. So they're equally delicious and you'll have your selection there. Of course, Free Trail listeners get special discounts of 15% off the whole product offering not just protein but everything else visit gonarly.com use code free trail 15 gonarly.com use code free trail 15 so let's transition and talk more about brand and industry stuff right now i know you have some thoughts on this we've sort of been exchanging some messages so opening it up fill us in sort of on where you're at in your professional career how you observe the brand athlete landscape right now where brands fit in with your personal career, if at all, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very eye-opening or kind of mind-blowing to me. Moving, Gabriel was a professional track and field athlete, which it's running, but it's not at all the same sport of trail ultra, and it's not at all the same sponsorship, consideration, usually not even the same athlete manager. So completely different things. So we're talking like hockey and basketball. Um, But the professionalization of that sport came a long time ago. And I think ultra trail running is in the midst of the professionalization of the sport. I'd say you're a pioneer in professionalizing it. Uh, Looking back on your career, which I think has a long way to go, and I'll always be a huge Dylan fan. So Thank you, um, yeah, just seeing the OGs and their sponsorships, like obviously you're not still with North Face, but like the long-term things like watching you move through brands historically, whether it's via your social media. Um, but now I was with Ultra and Rabbit Apparel the last three years. Um, actually, huge thanks. I got to mention his name just because AJ Sousey just moved over to Ultra. He's the new athlete manager, moved over from Saucony. Um, I'm not sure how long he was there. I've just gotten to know AJ over the last month or so. And he's been the biggest athlete advocate I've ever met. He's, I mean, I've, he's texted me in the middle of the night. I've texted him in the middle of the night. He's someone who like, he's exactly what you want in that athlete manager. He cares about me. He cares about Amanda resigned with Ultra. I'll probably resign with Ultra. I will resign with Ultra today, tomorrow, whenever the legal gets through. But he's vouched for me. He's he's a guy that knows road. He knows road really well. He know like Saucony has a bunch of good road athletes. Ultra is mostly trail. So he's like 
gone out of his way to learn trail very expeditedly. And he's taken my teaching points. And I'm hugely grateful that he is a cheerleader, a learner of the sport and a fan. Like you'd love him. He loves all sports. He just is a sports fanatic. So that's made life way better the past few days because with sponsorship with trail running, I think there's still a huge trail runners are expected to be influencers in, in reality. If you're not top few at Western, maybe hard rock, hard rock's like a smaller, I know it's a hard as hell race, but it's so small and niche. but like UTMB and Western, if you're not top 10 at those two, like you're really not the most relevant person in the sport. And I'm not, it's top so 10 true. It's so true. Isn't it? Yeah. And like that's what brands want. Like you either race Western States or one of the UTMB races or you don't matter. Isn't that, that's kind of the case. Maybe it, we're it oversimplifying is. a little bit, but not by much. Very little bit. I'd yeah. say it's very hard and it's like extra salt in the wound to be third. Like, I'm like, what about me? I like just missed the golden ticket by three minutes and by eight, like, it doesn't matter. I missed it. Like, I, and that was the point to stop drinking. Cause I probably left a few minutes in a course somewhere. Um, but I get it from brands. Like there's not a calculatable return on investment in your athlete. Like th- it's just this big black box. And I think influencers probably garner a larger return on investment. Cause they're relatable. Like the 200 pound version of me going over the trails versus this like scrawny emaciated hundred mile a week version of me, like the 200 pound version of me is going to sell more shoes because it's more relatable. Yeah. I don't know, but I think it, I hope in the next 10 years, ultra running becomes a sport on its own. You don't need to be as much of an influencer. Everyone will always need social media and some sort of following and you have to be a good brand advocate but hopefully performances can shine through and hopefully there's a lot of really like when you won mount fuji that was like my go-to like i was like that's the coolest thing in the world i couldn't care less about western states but like the scenery of that race the beauty like everything to take it in like that was me falling in love with the sport and it was you in this environment that I thought was so majestic and I just wanted to see, but brands don't always care about that. Yeah. You, you have said here in the pod, and I think you put up a post about this too, just like the frustration of having to justify your value to a brand, even when you're, you know, in the mix for those golden tickets, like you're finishing on the podium at a golden ticket race, which in and of itself should justify some sort of a sponsorship. Simultaneously, the sports exploding globally. We know a lot of these brands are making a lot of money off of that growth. And, you know, you can only hope that it trickles down. It was actually, I was talking to somebody recently because Amherst Sports, the parent company of Solomon and Arcteryx went public last week. And in preparation for doing it, they had to report earnings and stuff like that. And this person, it was a pro athlete. I don't know. I don't want to name him just in case he doesn't want to be named, but he and I were talking about it and he made the observation that Solomon did a billion dollars in sales last year and 65% of their sales come from footwear meaning they sold $650 million of shoes last year. Obviously that's not pure profit, but there's room to have some of that trickle down to the athletes. But at the same time, the athletes do have to 
show value back to their sponsors and it's a difficult balance. And anyway, it'll continue to be that way for, um, you know, time immemorial, I think, as long as people are being sponsored. Anything you want to say about that? <laughs> I just, I mean, I think it's also really hard. I think for me needing a sponsor, like being like, I'm a huge advocate of people getting their worth, but then there's a bunch of really good runners that are taking gear deals, you know, taking free shoes in that, in the end of the day, does diminish some athletes worth because it's just free advertising. Like I thought it was wildly interesting at the trials, how few Nike shoes were in the front um, when it's obviously the best shoe. I mean, Science shows the Nike Super Shoe is still the biggest performance enhancer. Yeah. But more athletes were sponsored. Puma threw a Hail Mary and they have two women Olympians. They sponsored a whole bunch of super talented women like around the nation and they hit a home run with it. So it's it's all just interesting to me. Um, it is interesting. But, and I heard that like Nike as a brand sort of disappeared at the trials. I heard Hoka was all over the place. Asics obviously had good performances in both the men's and women's races. Puma knocked it out of the park. So it's a dynamic and interesting landscape. Yeah. And like back to, this is completely off topic, back to our original topic, the two BYU grads that went one, two in the men's race. I assume I'm not making any like wildly religious assumption, but I assume they're Mormon. I assume they don't drink. Like, look, that's just the powerhouse program. You got their men's and women's program are phenomenal. So in medicine, we learned blood transfusion protocols from Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't accept transfusion. So we learned the critical low values of your hemoglobin and hematocrit to like provide blood flow to organs. So like someone needs to do a study on BYU. Like they're already like not making any mistakes and they're a hugely talented group of people. They're not reverse doping. Exactly. So you sent me a message about agents in the sport of trail running. And you said just before, and I think you're in a unique place to understand this given Gabriel's career that road and track racing is a different sport from trail running. So opening up that conversation about any experience that you have with agents via yourself or Gabe's career in the road and track scene, and now us in this maturing industry and in trail running, where you see agents fitting in. I have my own thoughts on this, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. So my initial thought is agents carry a uh, twofold importance in track and field and road running. They carry your brand capability, your brand earnings. And then when you're a track athlete, you want to get into the diamond leagues, the major races. So agents are usually slotted a few athletes per race where they will have, be able to get their athlete in essentially. So like the Monaco 1500 meters, like Paul Doyle got Gabriel in it. It's a little bit of politics, but she had a good enough time. It finished like fourth in the U.S. So each agent gets a certain allotment of athletes and the agent can sell like the gold medalist in the long jump. He's like, I'll give you the gold medalist in the long jump if you'll give me two spots here. It's like a game of chess. And that doesn't exist as much in trail running because trail running is 
you sign up for a race and you go run it. Like maybe you can get a race for free, like not pay the entry fee. Maybe if you're real high end, you're getting appearance fees. I'm sure Courtney's getting hopefully paid good amounts of money to go to races like Jim, all those people. But in my querying of athletes this year, um, learning more trail, talking to athletes, it seems athletes that worked with an agent in trail respectively got noticeably better contracts. They're usually pretty accomplished people, but they are making more. You're paying the agent 15-ish percent, so you're giving a piece of that. But the agent now can tie in your ultra deal. He also knows the woman that works for Koros. He also knows someone at a nutrition company. He also might know a couple of speaking engagements. So I think there probably is a balance where they're creating more worth for higher end athletes. I'm not saying I'm a high earning athlete, um, but I think once you're getting to like the top 10 at the UTMB events, the top 10 at Western States, I think an agent probably makes sense. If that, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. As well. Couple things. I've only heard of two examples in my career of an athlete being paid an appearance fee in trail running. I'm sure it's happened many more times than that, but I'm not so sure that Courtney's getting appearance fees. She's certainly not from races like hard rock in Western States. So it would be other events where, I mean, she absolutely deserves it. A hundred percent objectively deserves it, but I'm not so sure that this sport has matured to that degree where we do see that in, especially like the marathon majors, et cetera. The other thing that you mentioned that I think is really important is the value that agents provide comes with a price tag that being typically 15, 20%, I think in some cases, I entertained the idea of getting an agent one time in my career. This was at the end of 2018. I was renegotiating all my contracts with the two major ones with the North Face and Red Bull at the time. And I talked to a guy who I still have immense respect for who was specializing mostly in the triathlon space, but who I had worked with in my professional life and ultimately decided not to do it because I had already cultivated those relationships myself. And it was hard for me to justify, Hey, I, you know, putting somebody in between these brands who I've uh, built relationships with myself and then paying you to do it. I was like, you know, I can probably get within 15% myself, but right. I think you're right. You know, and, Anthony Costales is a good example. We talked about this on my show recently. I think it was in our trail runner of the year conversation where he said, you know, he hired Josh Cox. Josh has great reputation, knows everybody in the industry. Anthony's a dad. He's a teacher prefer to let the professional do the contract negotiation. He lands with Nike. He's probably in a great spot. And I'm sure Josh did his job and, you know, got Anthony a contract that maybe is better than Anthony could have done on his own. So those are sort of my high level takes. I think athletes would be well served to learn this, how to negotiate them for themselves. At least those who, I mean, for some people, they don't want to be involved in contract negotiations. They would love to have somebody that advocates on their behalf, but it's a good skill to learn the business side of the sport and to learn negotiation because then you can go into conversations with brands and partners, knowing your worth, knowing what their priorities are, where you can meet in the middle to form a really valuable 
mutual partnership. And I think that the opportunity is potentially starting an agency in the sport, but maybe more so to form some sort of like a educational service to athletes to teach them how to advocate on their own behalf. So those are my, yeah. those are my, uh, my, I guess, high level comments. Like the U.S. Road, I think it's like U.S. RRA Roadrunner Association. They actually have a camp for new grads to like navigate spot. Like they have some agents come in, some brands, and it's like a learning scenario. The only thing like I think I'm like maybe sensitive or but like a hard part for me was the feeling like. I'm worth less by like a brand saying they didn't want me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like just hard on the ego. And I'm like, I think there's a lot of athletes where like, if they heard that it would deter them from the sport. And it really like deterred me for a few days hearing that, like, you're not that great, man. Like, <laughs> and it's, they're not wrong. Like I hope to be better, but, uh, it gave me like a three day cycle of like, yeah, four beers, five beers. I don't want to run today. Like what's the point of it all. And then finally I went for a run and it was beautiful. Out and I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to do this. Yeah. You know? So you had a moment where it was like, I'm doubling down on my career. Yeah. They, they, yeah, don't, yeah. they don't see the potential in me. I know it's there. So I'm going to go exactly. prove them wrong. Oh, that's great. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Tying it back to dry January. Okay. This is great. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about like kind of state of the sport stuff? I mean, it is a really interesting moment. The other thing that pops into my mind now as we're talking about sponsorship and stuff is, I mean, it's evolved for me a lot in my career. Like when I was 25, all I cared about was just being sponsored and nothing was cooler than just getting a box of free gear at my house and wearing a t-shirt with a brand logo on it. Now I feel like it's a tedious, you know, tired thing. And I've, 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 whatever I've outgrown it or I've aged out of that part of my life. And also Anna Frost was on the podcast recently and she said that this is her first year ever, or at least in the last 20 or 25 years where she's not had any brand partnerships. And she feels like a sense of freedom to not be associated with a brand. So anyway, representation of, you know, what, uh, what athletes feel, I don't know. It's both like a, an attractive thing to have sponsors, but also it's, there's a feeling of freedom and being absolved of that responsibility too sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think it's a two edged sword. The big, like I just praised AJ, the big um, selling piece for me was getting to work with someone new to the sport, um, someone very eager to learn the sport. And hopefully, like I saw your um, your Black Canyon email just came out like the preview. You missed my guy, Makai Clemens. He's going to he's going for the win. Shit. Um, he's, my, he's my pick to take it all. Uh, but he, I think he's sponsored by like Drymax Socks, which I don't know what that sponsorship entails, but there's some low hanging fruit to sponsor and like some super up and coming great athletes. And I'd love to, in a different life where I didn't go into medicine, I'd love to be like an athlete manager. And do you know who Capriati is from Nike? He yes. used to be. Yeah. Yeah. So like he is the end all be all, sorry, my phone, the best athlete picker in the world like if he picked an athlete there was 100 chance they were setting an american record getting a gold medal like there's not a better talent scout in the history and 
he was a bad dude. Like he got a lot of bad press. I'm not giving him, I'm giving him his due, like best talent scout ever, but an absolute bad person. But I think trail needs more of these talent scouts. Like Nike's clearly doubled down. They have talented runners. I think Caleb Olson's super talented. They just picked up Castales is super talented. Tyler phenomenally talented. Like, they go for the creme de la creme, and I love to see that. So I want to see brands kind of go at it with their top-end talent, you know? Yeah, it's a service that I've thought about trying to provide through Free Trail, but I'd also like to just start sponsoring athletes myself through our little rinky-dink operation, but we're not selling $650 million worth of shoes, unfortunately. Maybe in the future, maybe in the future. Let's talk about your own running. Do you still have some time to keep keep talking here? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. I know uh, you're uh, you're pointing towards Terrawera, and it seems like you're in a really good spot, especially coming out of dry January, et cetera. You narrowly missed on the two golden tickets last year, as we, we've talked about. How are you thinking about your own ambitions in the sport generally, um, and you know specifically as we point towards Terrawera? Yeah, Terrawera, we were going to go as a family last year when it was a golden ticket race. Uh, my work schedule got screwed up. So Amanda went alone. I've always wanted to go there. I think I go in a little bit, uh, sheepishly with it. I was hoping you and Mario would delve deeper into the UTMB saga. Uh, No offense to you guys. I love your (laughs) PC stances. Um, but I listened to you guys three years ago or whenever when, um, Iron Man was moving in and I, distinctly remember sitting in the truck with Amanda and we were talking about it. So I have no ill will going in like not, I'm not getting paid to go, but UTMBs offsetting my travel, which that means a lot to me. Like they're considering me an elite, they're covering like flight or something like that's an appearance fee in a regard to me versus me just paying fully out of pocket or with my travel budget. So Tarawera, I want to do desert rats. I want to race a lot this year. I might do whatever 50 mile race it is to get into Leadville. I think Leadville has been, this is like no discount to any of the recent winners, but I think it's a little lower hanging fruit and sponsors still massively care about that race. I'm not saying I'm going to go in and win it. I might go in and blow, show up and blow up. Courtney might show up there. She might kick my butt. Like she probably will just, I'd love to just race Courtney coming from Minnesota. Uh, but uh, then I want to do a late season golden ticket, whether that's grindstone. I don't know if that'll still be a golden ticket race. I thought it was really well put on last year. I'd love to do Havelina. I've dealt with this like hamstring thing for years that seems good now. So I've been afraid to run on like the loose sand, but uh, I would like to get there. Yeah. I, I got to get a golden ticket. I'm sick of playing bridesmaid or whatever. So I'm ready to go. Dude, and that's a season, bro. I'm sure a, a couple of those will probably get deleted, but that's a lot of race in there. Yeah. I've wanted to ra- like my career kind of started during COVID and then it was like, just kidding, no racing. So I'm ready to go. I'm cutting down in the hospital, cut down on beer. Um, what else do I need to do? Committed, man. Look at us. We're both going to make a comeback this year. All right. Dude, Mozart, well, I want to get out there. That's been go. on my list. I let's hope go. you're going to crush that. <laughs> yeah, right. You are. What about Tara Wares specifically? Is Amanda still coaching you? Tell the people about what you guys have been working on, how your training's going, any of the major sessions you've been doing, and how, where your confidence and mindset's at going into Tara Wara. Yeah, I mean, I think confidence is really high. Uh, only... 
minor concern is it's crazy humid and it's drier than anything out here in Colorado. So lots of heat training, uh, hot tub sauna, but kind of just like the rinky dink. Like I said, she did that. We did that training camp with around 70 miles in three days, just felt phenomenal. Just the like two by 30 minute pushes uphill where I know when I'm taking like the Drew Holman crowns and the John Ray crowns, I'm having an okay day, you know, like I always jokingly relate everything to Strava, but it's all elbows and assholes and boulder for Strava segments. Like if you get one, you got to be having an okay day. So um, those don't come easy in boulder. That's for sure. Yeah. So (laughs) just, it's just been like kind of a growing confidence and feeling super fresh. Um, the taper starts kind of now, so just got to keep things in check and have fun. The big thing is having fun. I ran 100Ks wrong for years. This last year, I finally ran them right. Like 100K is a relatively easy jog for 50 miles, and then it starts to hurt a little more, you know? I, so, I remember at Canyon specifically, because we were there doing some coverage of the race, and I ran behind you, and maybe it was Cole. I can't remember who it was, but... I remember you specifically saying people are going out too hard. There's going to be carnage today. And there was obviously, and you narrowly missed that golden ticket, but still had a phenomenal third place that day. And you were closing hard at the end. So you figured out how to race hundred Ks. Well, cool, man. Well, one other thing I wanted to ask you about before we get to our traditional closing question is Amanda's UTMB last year. Since she's not here to talk about it herself, you posted something that I remember just being a really cool story, more or less, of her race. And that was that she was sort of texting you from the race course, telling you that she was going to quit. She was committed to quitting. She continued to commit to quit. And ultimately, she made it to the finish line. <laughs> so fill the audience in on those that text exchange. And I don't know what it was like to see her close the loop there that day and battle through that adversity and any takeaways that maybe is inspired into your own running. Yeah. I mean, that will be a bookmarked inspirational event in my brain that I carry forward every day, especially in lieu of me prior to her race texting. Like, I don't know what happened, but I somehow hurt my hamstring right before CCC. So I had myself a long day, a pity party, put a month into Chamonix, went nowhere. And, um, so her dealing with me before her race sets it off on a great foot. And then she had been having just a terrible night. I mean, with kids and stuff, we didn't do night training, but absolutely like everything went wrong. She went out a little too hard. Then shit hit the fan literally and figuratively like GI issues, just depleted, no energy, like ready to stop, ready to stop. How, who works for buff, was crewing her, kind of keeping her on moving, but minimally at times. And then finally she told me she was done and then looked at her tracker, kept teetering along, told me she was done. And I think Buff actually had a video of it. She was like leaving right by the lake. Um, it's like 40 Sh- miles left. Her Champelac, 30, yeah. 30 miles left. Yeah, sorry. Yep. Champelac, she's like hopping in the Buff van and Matt Daniels, bless his heart, comes by and he's just like, F it, you're not getting in that van. And it was just like a 
spark lit it, like a fire just was lit under her ass and they just started running and Matt was running faster. Amanda was running faster. Then I was like, my whole goal was to get to Trient and I'd made her like this wonderful iced coffee and got all these croissants and all this, food, like everything that could possibly make a person happy. And I'm like leaving this shop with a backpack full of like hundred euro worth of food and stuff just to try to get her to finish. And I like barely made it there. Cause she's like dead sprinting. And she's like, I don't need any of that crap. And she just, I mean, she's probably the toughest person I know. And for her to still get top 20, like it was a terrible day, like yeah. beyond terrible, but she had tied a lot of worth into that race where she was going to close the loop. And I remember like they bombed down from La Flagere so friggin' fast. She was in like 22nd and then ended up in 17th over like four miles. I was yeah. just like, like we were just getting to the street with the girls and they're like, man, it's coming around the corner. Everyone's like, Hold, like, uh, yeah, blew my mind. And huge thanks to Matt. Like what a guy, he's a phenomenal human and, We'll love him forever for, I mean, he says they got each other through, but just the fact that he got her not to step in that van. And then every time I feel like I'm hurting in a race, I just think about that and it's easy to press through. What a great story. I didn't realize the whole Matt Daniels detail. He's actually going to be one of our co-hosts at this week's coverage at Black Canyon. So I'll make sure to bring that up with him. This episode won't come out until after Black Canyon, but shout out to Matt Daniels. He convinced Amanda to get out of the van, get around the mountain. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. Great teamwork there. Well, Justin, dude, it's great to have you on the show, man. And again, yeah, major admirer of everything that you do personally, professionally in the sport with your foundation, et cetera. I have my traditional closing question before I let you go. And that is just who is one person that you admire can be inside or outside of sport living or dead. And why do you admire that person? Yeah. I mean, this is probably cheesy and cliche, but I have a lot of admiration for you, Dylan. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm a late adopter to the sport, but when I was coming into the sport, Mario was coaching me and he'd give me a lot of like Dylanisms and like, so I'd follow you not knowing you at all and found a lot of inspiration in the stuff you did and not even inspiration, but found competition. And I'm like, I want to beat Dylan. Like, I think you ran like the North face marathon when it was out in um, yeah. your area. And I was running the 50 can. I was like, shoot, I wanted to race Dylan. Like, <laughs> I had a great I mean, day just, that day. You would have had a, you would have had your hands full. You that was me in my me. prime, oh, I, dude. I was in my prime then. You'd have absolutely spanked me, but uh, no. And just what you do for the sport, what you do to kind of spread it, lift it. Even I really want to get out to some of your events. Um, and they look like everyone I talk to that does them has a phenomenal time. So it's hugely appreciated. Someone who's a fan of the sport and tries to cultivate it minimally myself with all my other obligations. I have a lot of respect for you. Dude, that's so nice of you to say. I really deeply, deeply appreciate it. And the feeling is, is really mutual. We didn't set this up to our listening audience here, <laughs> but no, um, no, no. I mean, any dad, I, I know the struggles you talk about every day. Yeah. And I fully expect you to be on the top of your game and better than ever. I'm making my way there, you know, just uh, stay on the straight and narrow you know, practice moderation with, uh, consuming certain, certain liquid substances. And, uh, you and I are both going to be at the top of our game this year, 
But uh, yeah, appreciate the kind words. We'd love to have you at any of our races in the, in the future and uh, look forward to seeing you around somewhere on the scene here in the yeah. new year. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Justin. Super appreciate his openness and honesty talking about tough topics like alcohol abuse. Hopefully it was interesting and impactful to discuss this stuff here on the podcast. A big good luck to Justin this weekend at Tarawera, one of my favorite races in the world. We'll be rooting for him down there in New Zealand. Make sure you give Justin a follow. If you don't already, I'd link to his Instagram account here in the show notes of today's episode. Free Trail Pro members obviously would love to hear what you thought of the episode. Hop in Slack. Let me know what you thought. If you're not a member, make sure you join. It's only $96 for the year. There are a ton of great perks, community, training plans, strength classes, Zoom calls, discounts with great brands, and so much more. It's a great value and also a great way to directly support our work. Thank you in advance. A big thank you also to our partner, Speedland. Visit runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off these great pieces of footwear. Gnarly Nutrition, go gnarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off. Osprey Packs, leading pack brand globally. Check them out at osprey.com or at your favorite local retailer. Finally, Rourke, Rourke Apparel. Rourke.com, R-O-A-R-K dot C-O-M. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off this great running and lifestyle apparel brand. Thank you all so much for listening. Always appreciate your time and attention. A lot more coming down the pipeline. Until then, we'll see you next time. We love you mucho. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.